Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for getting up early to study Revelation. You must be insane. Pretty much. Well, I think God put Revelation in just to make sure we were paying attention, right? There's nothing culturally as much as a leap as I think Revelation, the uh, the Jewish apocalyptic literature. So remember, hopefully this is sticking, in a biblical sense, in an ancient sense, what is the purpose of the apocalypse? It's a trick question. No. No, 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 no. It's not primarily to tell you about the end of the world. It's not primarily to tell you about what's to come. That's modern. I'm glad you said that so we can get it out. What is the point of apocalypse? To reveal... How to live, to uncover. There, there is a deeper truth to reality. And this is what's going to be revealed to you. Remember, it kind of grows out of the end of the Old Testament when Israel lost their land. And so they were struggling with that very big question. What do you do when God is not with you? What do you do when your sin is so great that God has become your enemy? And so they were looking for a greater truth beyond the victories of the Babylonians, their defeat. They needed to see this greater vision. Most of the time... You have a a divine figure, angelic figure, an angel sometimes, in this case today Jesus, that's explaining to the hearer, the receiver of the revelation, really what's going on from sort of a spiritual foundational view. These events are happening, but let me show you what God is really doing. So... As much as in our language, apocalypse is the end, it's, you know, mutants and zombies and nuclear war, um, we, we got to hold to the biblical greater truth that's being revealed to us. And we'll see very quickly that Jesus is of this mind, that, that he wants us to get there. So we'll pick up with a very familiar phrase. I think we're at verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8. I hope. Ish. So I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And uh, of course, this is uh, Jesus speaking uh, to John. Uh, he hasn't seen Jesus yet, but he's he's hearing these words. Okay. In order to really unpack this, and this is huge, we got to review real quick what we know about John, specifically John the Apostle. What do we know about this guy? Fisherman. Got a brother? Yeah, he's a fisherman. Remember where he's from? Galilee. He's from the Galilee region. He's from Bethsaida. Yeah. Twin brother. What did Jesus give him the nickname? Sons of Thunder. The day they said, hey, Jesus, can you turn this town into a parking lot? 
Don't you have any nukes up your sleeve? Um, they were not fed. Traveling rabbis with their disciples or Talmudim are uh, supposed to be hosted, cared for by traveling people. After a long day of walking, they get to a town and the town turns their nose up them. And uh, John and his brother have had it. So they asked Jesus to, we struggle with the translation, either send a lightning bolt or send fire from heaven to consume them. And uh, hence Jesus gives them the cool nickname, Sons of Thunder. Sounds like an 80 rock band. Sons of Thunder. Be cool. And Jesus loved him the most. Yes. Strangely enough, only in the Gospel of John uh, does John record, uh, Jesus actually liked me the best. Uh, so that's always helpful. He is uh, a Jewish boy from Galilee. His Greek is probably the best of all the written uh, Greek that we have of the disciples. But his uh, native tongue is not Greek. Uh, he speaks it well, but it's not Greek. It's it's Aramaic. Um, and he certainly knows a lot of Hebrew. Um, he is the last, this will become important for us, he is the last surviving apostle. Definitely at the time of the writing. All the rest have been martyred. And it's not as if John is not faithful he will tell us some of his adventures going to the island of Patmos. The Romans have had him in custody. They've mis- abused him. Uh, they sent him to a work island. Um, but he will survive to the ripe old age of 88. Yeah. Does he know he's the last? He does. Yeah, he seems to. Although, I don't, he never says for sure, but, um, he will actually die. In Ephesus, and we'll talk about. Well, it's not up there. Um, well, I can't find it. Anyway, uh, he will die in the church at Ephesus, far from his home in Galilee. Yeah. It's what? It's up there now. Oh, it's up there now. There it is. Ephesus, yay! It's an interesting story, too, about his death, recorded in secondary sources. But let's go back to Aleph and Tau. Oh, sorry. Let's go back to um, uh, Alpha and Omega. A little bit strange to us, right? He's writing in Greek. What does the beginning and the end mean? Where did John pick up Greek? Business, um, especially selling fish and that kind of stuff, um, in order to do business with the Romans, other people, other Gentiles, you've got to got to speak both languages. But again, his has surprised a lot of people, especially in the Gospel of John, uh, that uh, maybe there was some money. Remember, fishermen are not poor people in uh, in the first century. They're part of a boom business selling uh, fish so the Romans can make their garum, their fermented fish sauce. That's kind of like their ketchup. But what's a little unusual? I mean, we all know Alpha and the Omega. What, what does that mean? Beginning and end. So Jesus says, I'm the beginning and the end. Yeah, John's written in Greek. Is Jesus speaking Greek? Uh, this is, this is, we, we get a little bit of challenge here. Um, and, and think about that phrase. Is Jesus and or God the beginning and the end? 
He's in the beginning, and he's in the end. Um, and in just a minute, we'll have a sort of qualification that, no, I'm really all the time. He is, exactly. Um, the, talk of the second coming. Yes, yes. But what's a little unusual about the Greek rendering here? There is no end. There is no end, yeah, and there is no beginning. And so a lot of, a lot of times, and it breaks my heart, um, and I wish somebody had said this to me earlier, a lot of times we Christians pick up phrases, and we know they're important, but we really don't know the depths of their importance. And so we hold on to them at a religious level. I am the Alpha the Omega. I mean, that's, man, that's entered our language in a big way. But really the depths of it that which John is laying out for us is not, uh, is not really, uh, there for us. So let me try to explain. I think we have a screen here for this. I believe, um, and much bigger minds than me believe he's actually making reference to I am the Aleph and the Tau. So I am the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and I am the last, which gets translated into Greek as Alpha and Omega, so Aleph and Tau. But um, I should have thrown this up there so quick, but it works. So what he is actually doing is referencing the very beginning of Scripture. There is a word in Hebrew that is the word for truth. And it is spelled uh, Aleph Tau. So I am the truth. Uh, run through Jesus' catalog for a second of things that he says. Uh, specifically look at the Gospel of John. And uh, when does Jesus say this kind of stuff? I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. And that's actually what John is referencing here. So uh, I have to take you through Hebrew real quick, at least how they would use this. They are very aware that the last words that God spoke in uh, creation, if you're in the Genesis class, we've got this, Abara Elohim La'ashot. So they take the last letters, and I know this sounds really weird to us, but this is this is what rabbis do. This is how they study the language. More important, with John, you see him quoting a lot of things that we know from the Talmud that the ways that they taught kids Hebrew, like in the beginning was the word. We've talked about this before, right? The first letter in the Hebrew Bible is the letter B. Better sheet. It should have been an Aleph. Uh, remember, the letters are also numbers. So the Bible is starting with the letter 2, which really confuses everybody. But um, in the first letter of the Bible, the letter B, there's actually the... the and I know I'm, I'm getting weird here, but um, in the letter B, there is a pay in the middle of it, which is the word for word. Pay means word. So in the beginning, literally in Bereshit, 
there is a pay. This is how little kids were taught Hebrew. They speak Aramaic, they're learning Greek, but they've got to learn Hebrew because it's a religious language. So John will use that at the beginning of his gospel, right? To uh, really blow it up, that Jesus was the Word and the beginning was the Word. So he's sort of doing the same thing here. Um, this is one of the ways the kids learn the word emet, which is truth. So bara Elohim la'ashot. Aleph, Mem, Tau. So the beginning, Aleph, and the Tau. They tend to drop the M because it's, it's related to death in a minute. But, so we have Aleph, Mem, Tau. This is the truth. So Jesus has just said to a Hebrew, this is the truth. John will also reference this by saying everything was created through Christ, right? He seems to be doing the same kind of thing here. Also, the Talmud makes a big distinction that if you drop the Aleph from Emet, you get Met, which is the word for death. Aleph tends to be the letter and the number for God. Aleph is uh, three parts that come into one. It is the number one. It is where all things start. So sort of if you take God out of the truth, then you get death alone, met. So let me stop. Does that make any kind of sense? Just remember Emmett Smith, right? (laughs) His name is Truth. So Jesus has said to John, I am the truth. In a sense, I am life. That that whole phrase, um, I am the truth, I think it's our next slide, um, out of John 14, I am the way. This is a direct reference to Ezekiel and the way of the Messiah. Uh, it's a... It's a whole process where the river of life goes out for the temple of Ezekiel. It creates a road. It pushes down mountains. It goes into the Red Sea and brings life. Uh, so Jesus is the Messiah. He is the truth, the emet, and the life. He's not the met, which would have been the death. Right? So John is very much showing, I think, his his Jewish background. This whole book is definitely written for uh, Jewish Christians or Christians that have enough understanding of the the Old Testament uh, to sort of run with these guys. Uh, but John is really going back to his his younger kind of roots. So now big questions. Why would one of the most important things Jesus say to John at the beginning of this revelation, of this apocalypse... B, I am the truth. Why is that super important? False prophets. Yeah. To warn them away from things, but what's the whole point of the apocalypse? To reveal. To reveal. And so Jesus is giving it here. I'm the truth. You want to know why the church is being persecuted? You want to know why there's so many martyrs? You want to know why I haven't come back? If we have time today, we'll try to get to this, but um, start dealing with the Roman emperors that are are causing so much pain and discussion or, or pain and, and destruction is 
going to be explained by Jesus, that there's a process that's going through. It's happened before, it's happening now, and it will happen again. So it's, uh, and he'll sort of lay that in just a second, but uh, God is still on this throne. He's still in control. He's still going to take care of his church. This, John and reader, is the truth. Okay, so if you if you do hear that Alpha and Omega in in the future, try to hold on to it. He's not the beginning and the end. He is the truth. He is the truth by which God created the world in Genesis, and He's the truth that sustained Israel, and the truth that sustained the church in the uh, ugly parts of the first century. And He is the God that will sustain us as we go through the tribulation and the end times. Clear as mud. Welcome to Hebrew, boys and girls. Um, so, oh God. And that's living water that I just threw all over the place. So what about those who want to just throw out the Old Testament? It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous, yeah. It's like, I want to be an engineer without math. Um, but people try it. All right. So then Jesus lays out for us, uh, continuing on, uh, I am. Why is that significant? Yahweh. Yeah, that's actually the name of God, uh, Yahweh, I am. So always there is this association, Jesus is God. And Jesus is the one appearing to... Sorry, don't worry about it, it'll dry. Just make sure you didn't soak your phone. Oh, yeah. Thank you. All right. I am the one who is... Who always was and who is still to come, the Almighty One. So here you do have this timelessness, and oh boy, is this going to give us a run for our money. When we try to understand God and heaven and New Jerusalem and what is to come, our overwhelming temptation is to apply the same standards of time and experience to God. And that is a huge mistake. What time is it in heaven right now? There is no time. It's not Tuesday morning. What is today? Tuesday morning. Yeah, it's not Tuesday morning early in heaven and the sun's coming up. Um, God is timeless. That's what his name, Yahweh, has always implied to us. He is that which has always been, that which is always constant. I am. He's not I was. He's not I will be. He is this constant. And Jesus is sort of laying it out for him. Through all the concepts you have of time, past, present, and future, I am. Okay? Are we okay? All right. Verse 9. I, John, am your brother and your partner in the suffering and in God's kingdom and in patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. Now, there's great humility here. I think he could have said, I am an apostle. I was a student, a disciple, a Talmudim, trained to be a rabbi by Jesus. But at the end, he didn't make me just a rabbi. He made me an apostle. He sent me to teach his teachings to the whole world. I am the last. But he doesn't do that. He's very humble. I'm your brother. I'm just a member of the church. 
in the writings of Eusebius, who is the first sort of church historian. He lives in the time of Constantine. So a couple centuries, 300s, John dies in the 90s or so. Um, he really describes this of John. Uh, he was blind uh, in his last years, but incredibly humble. After all he had seen, all he had lost, all he had taught, he was uh, very much a humble man. But he has suffered. He holds that God's kingdom is still there, and he's holding to patient endurance, which is what we have to do through hard times. So the patient endurance to which Jesus has called us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. So we start off with the screen. Uh, there's a little island of Patmos off the shore of Greece. If we can go back to that. Yeah, there it is today. It's kind of a tourist trap, um, but it was pretty rugged. The Romans had this as a mining camp, uh, so they didn't send you there to get some sun and enjoy the beaches, right? They sent you there to work till you were dead. And poor old John is a tough old Jew, and he will not die. Um, that's a good question. I think it's copper, but don't quote me on that. I, I will I will double check that. Um, so off the coast of Turkey, this whole area in here is sort of the cradle of the early church of Christianity, the seven churches that have been introduced to us and will come back. Uh, it's weird to think uh, that so much of the, what is in Muslim hands today was uh, Christian. Uh, Muslims have a uh, <clears throat> habit of taking other people's religious sites and uh, destroying them. If you've watched in India, they just managed to rebuild one of their temples after the Muslims had conquered, taken their temple out, and built on top of it. It's kind of a pattern. Uh, so uh, today, we're unable to visit these churches. Well, I mean, you can, but I wouldn't advise going to Turkey. Uh, their president is kind of a dictator. But uh, it's still the cradle that we have to go back and look at. We need to talk a little bit about the history of what's going on. What starts in 66 A.D.? Big event, yeah. Judah has finally had enough. The Jewish revolt begins against Rome. And to everyone's surprise, it initially works. Uh, the Jews wipe out two Roman legions. Not because they had a huge standing army of their own, not because they were necessarily better fighters. It was just desperation uh, driven by religious fervor. Um, the Romans obviously cannot let that stand. Uh, they have been defeated before, but uh, not quite in this way. Usually it was more... 
uh, like way off in far Britain, uh, places like that. You know, the famous, they march up to Scotland and they never come back kind of thing. Uh, but this was central, you know, this was part of the Mediterranean world. And so a long revolt will begin. Uh, Romans will begin to send in legions. We need to look at a Roman family that's come to dominate our understanding of this period. So, um, there we go. So there, eventually, he's not the initial generals, but eventually a Roman general named Vespasian is sent to deal with the Jews. And he is more successful than the others. He actually ends up besieging Jerusalem. Uh, this was one of the last holdouts. Uh, the temple in particular, the Jews refused to give up. And so Vespasian will besiege, and it's, by all accounts, will go through it. It was vicious. He is unable to finish the siege because he is called back to Rome to take the position of emperor. And so his son, Titus, will actually be the one that finishes the siege, uh, probably is responsible for burning the temple down. And we'll, we'll look at a, a historian, Josephus, who was a general in the Jewish army fighting the Romans, but he went Benedict Arnold. He betrayed his own people, and he ends up attached to Titus kind of as his Jewish pet. And so he's written a great deal of history, this turncoat. Um, I never liked the guy, but he does give us pretty good insight into how the battle went. Uh, Titus himself will become emperor next. And then there is one last little brother, a guy named Domitian, who is a complete nut job. And he is one of the figures, along with Nero, that John is going to reference for us. All these dudes are pretty bad, but the little brother is by far the worst. Let me, just for grins, uh, yeah, there he is right there. Um, Nice little Roman. Um, but this is what the Romans, not even the scriptures, this is what the Romans say about Domitian. Uh, so if you've never met a classicist, I've got a joy for you. There's all sorts of historians are weird, right? We're all weird. You, you've met, I think, kind of a typical Egyptologist in me. But uh, let me introduce you to a classicist. Uh, these are Roman classicists, and they love to tell you. So a uh, quick video. Uh, classicist telling you about Domitian. And he's trying to be nice, but Domitian is a nut job. So, let's see if this video works. Our best evidence for his personality comes from the writer Suetonius, who wrote a chapter on Domitian's life. And he describes him as a very haughty, arrogant man who was thoroughly unpleasant and who was an absolute dictator, who insisted upon being addressed as uh, Lord and God, who had no tolerance for the Senate as a democratic institution, putting the senators to death whenever they disagreed with something that he had done or when he thought that they were plotting his overthrow. Uh, he apparently was very sensitive about the baldness, premature baldness that he had. So we don't know that he was doing comb-overs, but he was certainly wearing wigs, at least according to Suetonius. Now, there was also 
his moral code, which angered many of the people. So he had a very strict moral code wherein anyone convicted of adultery was exiled from the city. He buried a vestal virgin alive, a woman who had violated her vows of chastity, which was technically possible. It was on the books as something that you could do, but nobody did it, burying a vestal virgin alive. And this, he did all of this in spite of the fact that according to Suetonius, he was quite lascivious himself, having affairs right and left, including with his own niece. Now, we can't assess all of these things, but the general feeling among many, uh, of, uh, many of, the, of the Romans was that he was not practicing what he preached. So, we got a nut job. He's got a complex about the hair. Uh, he is at war with the Jews. And this war is vicious. I mean, forget any kind of Middle East war we know. Uh, this was this was going for the throats. Eventually, they will destroy the temple and drive the Jews from Jerusalem. Uh, it will be vicious. Who do you imagine gets caught up in this? Who were kind of the innocent bystanders? Christians. From a Roman perspective, what are we? We're scum, but we're what? Jews. We're just a branch of Jews. Uh, when we say the word Jew, we imagine you know there is one type. But hopefully, through our studies, you realize certainly at that time, even today, there are just like there are a number of different types of Christians. There are different types of Jews. You have Pharisees. You have Sadducees. You have Zealots. You have Scari. Uh, you have these Messianic uh, Jews who worship some kind of Messiah. I mean, it's it's a spectrum of people. The Romans do not care. You are a threat to the emperor. You are a threat to Rome. A Jew is a Jew. And so one of the reasons they are executing, they are arresting and killing Christians, even before we become a threat later on, is because they're associating us with the Jews and they are, Romans are hell-bent on putting down this revolt and making sure that Rome is never threatened again by the Jews. So certainly John is a Jew uh, that follows Jesus and he has been arrested, uh, abused, tried, and eventually sent off in exile with the intention to die. Uh, but he does not. Isn't that word exile kind of a loaded word? For sure. Yeah. That you're sent off. Um, yeah. Uh, Jews have known a lot of exiles. Uh, Christians too, a few times. So where did the Jews get their uh, armory, their fighting equipment here in this time? They really don't have much other than what they take from the Romans. Uh, Israel is not heavy in metals. In fact, uh, you know, archaeologically, when they try to make their own coins, the only place they have any source of precious metals are the temple treasury. So they have to go in. So uh, for the most part, whatever weapons they have, they've taken from the Romans. Um, it is just desperation on their part. Um, and it's amazing they resist as long as they do. But it certainly got Rome's attention. So all this is happening in the background. Uh, continuing on with our text, uh, 
So he's on the island of Patmos for preaching the word and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in spirit. What is the Lord's day? It's Sunday, yeah. Sabbath is Saturday. Sunday is the Lord's day. And I was worshiping in spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. Now again, that's loaded language. Uh, Jesus knows how to make an entrance, right? This comes from behind him, and it's a trumpet blast. Is Jesus just like, boo? Or what What do you imagine when you hear trumpet blast? Mm-hmm. Jericho's walls. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good reference. Again, uh, for a Jew, the sound of this trumpet would have instantly been the presence of God. Sort of like uh, if we pray, play the presidential march behind you, you instantly know, oh, here, here's the president. He's, he's coming in. Uh, back in Exodus, the Jews remember when they were at Sinai and God spoke to them. It sounded unlike anything they'd ever heard before. Well, sort of. It, it was very otherworldly. And the closest thing that they said it sounded like was the blowing of a shofar, was the blowing of this ram's horn. So every time they do it, from Jericho to the Day of Atonement, it is this recognition, this fanfare, if you will, for God. Uh, it does sound different. Let me just play a second or two of uh, if you've never heard one before. It doesn't have all the notes that ours do today. So there you go. It uh, is also heavily involved in the Hebrew sense of what is spirit? Air, wind. And so you've got this blowing wind, this blowing presence. Remember, it's the same thing at Pentecost, right? It's this blowing wind. And they're saying it sounds like that. That's the closest thing. So uh, <clears throat> this is not a trumpet as we would know in a brass kind of sense. This isn't a, a saxophone. My son plays the saxophone now. I'm like, oh, that's not the shofar. Um, but instantly, I think John knows, oh, God, God is here. Um, God is here. So he hears the sound. He, he um, the voice says to him, and what does your translation say? It said, I don't like that at all. Um, write, what does yours say? Yeah, mine says write in a book. I went and looked up in Greek this morning. There's no book. There's no books. Yeah, okay, write a scroll. Why do they, it, it, it doesn't say scroll, it just says write. But write everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So again, they've been introduced to us before. But here is, if you will, the revelation, the apocalypse. Here is the truth. 
God has appeared to John, and he's instructing him to write what we're reading in order to send to these, these churches. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstand was someone like the Son of Man. Holy moly. Okay, so lampstands, seven gold lampstands. Instantly, uh, their thinking goes to this. I think we have some gold lampstands. So this is actually a reconstructed uh, lamp, uh, the great menorah that goes inside the temple. Uh, there is a group in Jerusalem. There's all sorts of different kinds of Jews today. There is a group that is ready for the temple to be rebuilt. And so they took the instructions out of Exodus and how to build this lamp, and they have followed it. One of the very different things about this article compared to other temple articles is this is solid gold. Other temple items are usually acacia wood covered in gold and foil. This is solid gold. And before we had a cross, the symbol for the Messiah was this. Of all the temple furniture, this is the pure one. This is the gold. The purpose of this lamp, uh, the Hebrew word menorah, is to light the way to God. Inside the Holy of Holies, whether it was the tabernacle or later the temple, the way that you saw in there, there's no windows, is that this lamp would lead you to the Holy of Holies. It's what's lighting everything. Also, if you've been in study here with us, this is a lamp. So why is that significant for the Messiah? Right. So exactly the Mashiach. So the oil that goes in here is the tithe oil. You would fill these up and then you would light them. Um, that is called Mashiach. That is called Messiah. So the oil burns. The Messiah burns. Jesus says, uh, "I am the light." Well, this they would have understood that instantly uh, because. The lamp burns, not just this lamp, but all of the lamps they use burns from this oil that produces the Messiah. So the anointing oil, the, the burning oil, it's all there. Is that as big as it appears to be based on the people in the world right now in the building? It is big, yeah, yeah. And it is guarded like nobody's business. Uh, the Israelis, uh, when they first take their oath to service, this isn't a square in the Jewish quarter in Old Jerusalem. Uh, they take their vow to Israel right in front of this. It's it's really pretty neat to see. Yeah. Can you speak to the difference between the north and the seven lights and nine lights? Yeah. yeah um, this is actually the temple menorah. The other are Hanukkah candles which are completely different. They're, they're celebrating Hanukkah through the, the period where the candle was, was kept burning. It's not the same, yeah. The, the seven-branch uh, candle. And it, as you see sort of John using it, uh, it's like every church has their Christ, right, if you will. Every church has their lamp. Um, 
So it's just it's just old Jewish symbolism. Yeah. No, it's not that tall. It's it's raised on a platform, so it's it's a little bit higher. Um, you know, I, I I'll bring you more updated pictures. That's at night, and it's a little little. Uh, a little dramatic. Yeah, it's a floating wick. It's linen that they lay on top of it. Um, also, it's got almond blossoms, uh, which are really important symbolism. Uh, the almond is the first tree that will bloom in Israel, so it's a sign that winter death is over, and Jesus very much fulfills that kind of role uh, that uh, the Messiah has come. So again, insight into John's world, right? He's showing us very strong things from his his youth, um, carrying them forward uh, into the early church. Uh, seven, of course, uh, being significant number in Hebrew, um, matching for a second in stars. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. I think Stevie covered this last week. What is the son of man? Because technically in English, we're all son of men, right? Hopefully, the woke people haven't got too crazy, right? Uh, um, as explained by Daniel. As explained by Daniel, right. Remember, there was this enormous vision, prophecy, event that happened in Daniel. Daniel saw the end of the world. He saw judgment day, just like John is going to see it uh, in many chapters ahead. That day he saw God on the throne. And God was this incredible burning light. He saw the throne, he saw some things around it, but he couldn't quite see into the throne. Uh, you, you can't describe God, and the Jews never really try. They describe everything around God. But what was incredibly unusual for Daniel... And remember, he is going through that same process that we're talking about. The Jews have lost their country. Daniel is a slave in a foreign country. He's asking God, why have these things happened? So the answer, God is showing the culmination of history. As he looked into this light, he sees a second figure in the light. Now, this was a shock to him. He couldn't describe the figure other than to say... In Aramaic, because the Jews have stopped speaking Hebrew, they're speaking the language of their new masters now, Aramaic, what Jesus spoke. Uh, let me get this right. Bar-Enosh. Um, one that looked like unto Bar-Enosh, a son of humans, a son of a man. He's saying it looked human. I looked into the light, I knew God was there, and then I see the second figure. Now the Jews get really hot and bothered about this, the second power in heaven. Who is the second figure? It is Jesus. It looks like a human. Now, forever and ever, they've been monotheists. Um, but now there is this second figure. It looks like a human. And so, from the time of Daniel forward, they're constantly searching. Who is the Ban Enosh? Who is the Son of Man? Looks like unto a Son of Man. Who is this? And of course, Jesus' title for himself more than anything else is not Son of God or Messiah, but Son of Man. 
It doesn't translate well into English. It seems uh, redundant. But for a Jew, wow, this is that figure. What's more, Daniel describes that this Son of Man figure is the one that judges humanity. Which, of course, we know uh, Jesus uh, being the one that judges all people. Sit at the right hand of God and will judge that that part. So they never connected the by notion Messiah? Some Jews do. Yeah, a lot of them do. Um, some don't. Um, referring to those prior to Jesus' time, the priests. Why were, yeah. I was looking for why were they so resistant and so ignorant to acknowledge him as the Messiah. So I've got a book if anybody wants to read it. I had to slog my way through it. It's it's a good read, but it's a challenging read. It's all the references to the Son of Man in Jewish literature, uh, basically from the time of Daniel uh, to past Jesus. And it's it's a tome. There is a lot, and they are talking a lot about it. Um, different groups all have a different perspective uh, of who and, and what it is. A lot of them think it's Ezekiel returning. A lot of them think of him it's a it's a warrior. A lot of them think there's two of them. There's the son of David and there's son of Joseph, and so that's that's a big contention. Uh, the book of Enoch has a lot of writing. Uh, so yeah, some get Jesus, uh, others they. There, there's another figure that will come after this. Uh, a guy named uh, uh, Bar Kokhba, uh, Simon uh, Bar Kokhba, Simon, son of the Star, and he is actually proclaimed uh, a Messiah. Uh, and he'll lead the Bar Kokhba revolt, another Jewish revolt against Rome that fails. Uh, so they're looking for the Son of Man. Uh, but here, I mean, we, we just finished coming off of Mark. How, how boisterous was Jesus about being God and, and the Messiah? No. He, he was a little shy, right? I mean, he'll do it. Um, and certainly later on, he, he gets more into it because his time has come, he proclaims. But in the beginning, you know, he, he does it, like I said on Sunday, pull out his ID and say, hey, it's me, Jesus the Christ, I'm here. Um, but here, there's no wiggle room, right? I mean, is there any doubt Jesus is God? Absolutely none. Uh, and there's no doubt that he's he's the son of uh, son of man. Um, he is the one that God has always intended to judge us. He's the, the the savior. He is the perfect perfect person. So what is it like for John to see this resurrected Christ? He knew him as a human, and now he sees him, and I would say his. His real form, his full form. Um, so 14. Uh, well, no, I should back up. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. What does the sash mean? It means you're a priest. Yeah. So Jesus is uh, the white uh, in, in biblical thinking. White is always associated, white robes always associated with priests. The Kohanim are, uh, are the priests and they, they wear, they wear the white. The, the sash also, uh, will mark them as a, as a lector, as a reader, as a priest. Um, 
So Paul told us in Hebrews that Jesus was sort of our high priest, and here you have him definitely dressing that kind of role. His head and his hair were white like wool. <laughs> Boy, I've heard some weird sermons here. Um, so, this is bad. Has anybody ever been to like a poor town in Mexico? I mean, I'm not talking Acapulco, but, you know, just uh, what color is everything? Brown. Brown. Any kind of shade. I don't care if you have a white truck, it's brown. I don't care. You know, everything's just a shade of dusty brown. Welcome to the Middle East. Everything is kind of just brown. Your food's brown. The women are brown. I'm kidding. Um, everything's brown, right? Um, so their color spectrum, the things that are truly white and bright and standing out is very different from ours. Uh, freshly cleaned, prepared wool is pretty bright in their world, right? It's not like a neon sign in Las Vegas, but it's kind of their equivalent. So he is trying to um, uh, to describe Jesus by the whitest things he knows. I mean, he seems to be glowing. This, by the way, sounds very familiar to Daniel 7, but he's glowing, he's, he's bright, so he's white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. We're not in Galilee anymore. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like a mighty ocean wave. So uh, references here certainly to creation, uh, to just the raw power. Uh, This is not the humble rabbi from Nazareth. Uh, This is... This is God appearing in a way that speaks to uh, John, but uh, makes it very clear to us who is who is in charge. So I'm going to run out of time here. Let me stop. This is hard to do in the in the mornings. It, it's it's hard to take big bites, but we've run through a lot. Questions, comments. The white is wool and the flames of fire, doesn't that symbolize pure? It does, yes, yes. White purification. Yeah. Uh, priests would always wear white robes. You know, the, the funniest thing I ever heard was that Jesus was a black man because he had white wool hair. I'm like, uh, I, uh, he's Jewish. He's, he's, so, no, his, uh, it's, it's, it's pure, it's clean, yeah. Um, but as we sit on the precipice of, are we going to war with Iran? Uh, well, we have North Korea and Russia and China. I mean, it's it's almost like Korea. Yeah, we got Korea. I mean, it's just it's like World War II again. The bad guys are just lined up. You know what? What is happening to American culture? What is happening to the church? What is happening to truth? In many ways, I feel like Daniel. I feel like John. I feel like God. Are you there? Are, are are you are you helping? Uh, there's wars and, and death, and you know the same truth is what they're trying to speak here. And I think it works on the personal level too. Things 
lot of times in life can be out of control. We just don't know what to do. We just want the pressure to, to leave. We just want to live life. This is what Revelation is designed to speak in. It's not just history. It's not just the future. It is both of those things, but it's also the here and now. How do we have this experience with Jesus where he says, I'm the truth. You want to know why all this is the way it is? Listen to me. I will help you make the choices to lead you to become the person you were meant to be, to get through this life and into the next one, and that which really matters. Yeah? I have a question. Should, should the church be more vocal during this time? I mean, I know we're supposed to trust God for the outcome, and not, but, but some of the stuff I've been reading is the other thing, you know, the church really needs to be more vocal at this point in time. I, I think yes, that we definitely need more vocal. We don't need to be stupid. We don't need to be obnoxious. Uh, we don't need to make the problem worse. And unfortunately, a lot of times when we get vocal, we run through that list, right? Um, we need to listen to the words of Jesus. We need to be able to say, uh, this is not good. You know, this is not what God intended for us. But we also have to hold on to the message of love and forgiveness. So it's a balancing act. You'll see John try to push the envelope. Because if you don't say a Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Emperor, I mean, you've got Domitian, right? He thinks he is uh, Lord and uh, Dominar at, what is it, Deus, uh, God, Lord and God. So he's crazy. If you don't say that, they'll kill you. So you see the church kind of, mm, okay, we, we got to bridge this, but there are ways that they say Jesus is Lord. So maybe maybe we can learn something maybe from that. More the question of should we be more outspoken to people? Oh, yeah, 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 I mean, church. Yeah, how, 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 yeah, how? Yeah. The church. I mean, because nowadays if you're outspoken, you're just being considered abnormal. You're on the far right. Right. You know, you're, you're out there, but I mean, what I'm reading, it's all about you need to be more vocal and speaking up against the evil and the untruth in the world and speaking more to the truth. Yeah. But again, but, you know, progressive would be Cancel culture counsels you out. Yeah. But but again, that's the persecution. Well, in the perceived church, can't even get on the same page. That's going to want to do that. Good point. And now you know why we're on our own. Uh, disaffiliated. Yeah. John doesn't go up to the Emperor Domitian and says, you know what, you're crazy, um, and you're bald. But what he does do is talk to people that will listen. What he does do is continue to win people uh, to the kingdom. Um, so there, there's ways of talking back, and then there's ways of just arguing. Paul was outspoken. He was. Yeah. And, yeah, they killed him. Yeah, Marvin. Quick question. Uh, in, in our waste of time study, we talked about Genesis, and in Genesis we talked about... God looks at things and he says, whoa, things have gone off the rails, so I'm going to create this big flood and I'm going to destroy the world. Jesus had the power, I believe, to say, 
Not the guy. Not today, guys. You're not going to crucify me today. Did he check out too soon that he didn't teach us well enough in the three years? <laughs> we still don't get it. <laughs> not sure how to answer that. <laughs> I'm, I, that, yeah, it's the teacher's fault, right? If the students don't get it, there, there is some truth to that for sure. Um, God has taught in so many different ways, creative ways, challenging ways. It's just our will is so stubborn, so desperate for us to be the masters of our own life that it's it's hard. Um, Revelation is supposed to be teaching us or telling us or reminding us that this is what Jesus told us, this is how he told us to live. Yeah. Well, it's hard to hear, but what is the largest religion in the history of humanity? Christianity. What is the largest religion on the face of our planet now? Christianity. What is growing faster than any other religion right now? It's Christianity. Uh, we were still beating them in Africa and Asia. Um, it's our country. It's Europe and America now that are having the hardest time. So... Uh, we just got to keep teaching, keep talking, keep doing, keep having faith. Is it kind of but, the problem with generational wealth thing? You know? yeah, it seems like people have money, the, the more they take it for granted and the dumber they get, then they end up losing it. It's certainly Israel's example. Uh, when they uh, when they have everything they want, they're fat and sassy. Um, they tend to go off the rails. I don't know. There were a lot more prayers in World War II um, than there are now. But. To Aaron's question, I think the four Midland program that we're doing is a way to address. Yeah. And, and, you know, Midland, again, Midland is, a, I think, to me, Midland's not the area you, you need. The church needs to be talking in New York. Chicago. Odessa. No I'm kidding. Church needs to be talking right where you're at. Yeah. That far left, and those big cities are the ones that are far left. And their and their religious beliefs. They're leaving the church. The younger generation is just they don't see a need for church. And again, it goes back to the, the deterioration of the family unit. There's no men leading that. It's no, it's it's a challenge. We're not even sure what a man is anymore. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah, the remake. Anyway, we've run over. Let me stop. Let's pray, um, and we'll head out and tell somebody. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the meat of your word, the weight of it. We thank you for the faith that you had in John. We thank you for his faithfulness. Whatever he did, it worked. Because we're sitting here today, not as citizens of New Rome, but citizens of the kingdom of God. We pray that the same faithfulness will be found in us. Lord, we don't know how to challenge the might 
of those that question you, deny you, those that want to redefine our civilization. But we do know how to listen to you. We do know how to pray. We pray that we continue to your word, that we might share it faithfully and truly. We remember that we are far from perfect, and you have saved us sinners and made us different because of it. Help us to bloom where you have planted us here and help us to honor your call wherever you call us to go. Bless these men and may we be the salt and the light that our world needs. In your son's name we pray. Amen.